inspiring conversations with the most compelling performers, educators, authors, and product manufacturers of our time. This is the show about all that's new and neat with clarinet, with the neatest people in the industry. Welcome to the Clarinet Podcast. The modern musician functions like a small business where handling marketing, sales, and taxes goes hand-in-hand with writing, practicing, teaching, and playing the music that you love. Bass clarinetist Michael Lowenstern is the epitome of this portfolio career mentality and is a veteran of this podcast who needs no further introduction. Today on the program, he shares behind-the-scenes information on running his music business, online shop, YouTube channel, and how he writes his amazing music, some of which you can hear now featured at the intro and outro of this very podcast. I'm your host, Sean Perrin, and you're listening to the Clarinet Podcast at clarinet.com. If you'd like to listen to an extended ad-free version of today's episode and many others, head to clarinet.com slash subscribe. Don't forget to visit the Clarinet store for links to buy official apparel and special offers, products, and services, some of which are available exclusively to our listeners. And of course, I love to hear from listeners all over the world. If you'd like to get in touch with me or be a guest on the program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button at our website. Again, that's clarinet.com. Thank you so much for listening to the show, and thank you especially to our sponsors for helping make it all possible. If you wanted to try Daddario Reads but weren't quite sure which to choose, here's how to decide. Reserve Reads come in a white and blue box. They feature a traditional blank and are perfect for those who want to focus sound with the quickest response possible. Reserve Classic Reads come in a white and purple box. They feature a thicker blank that provides an expanded tonal color palette, clarity of articulation, and added flexibility. And the new Reserve Evolution Reads come in a white and yellow box. They feature our thickest blank and have a heavy spine for added projection and exceptional tonal depth, warmth, and flexibility. You'll have to try it to believe it. Try Reserve Reads now at your local music store or head to clarinet.com reads to buy a box right now. Hosting for Clarinet is sponsored by Bakun and their new Vocalese mouthpiece, Complex Resonance at a Reasonable Price. Get yours at www.bakunmusical.com and save 10% on any accessory purchase with code CLARINET at checkout. Join renowned clarinetist David Schifrin at the International Clarinet Celebration in beautiful Portland, Oregon, June 24th to 30th. Hosted by Chamber Music Northwest, this event combines a full week of concerts by world-class artists like Corrado Giuffredi and Jose Frank Biester. There's also clarinet masterclasses, lectures, clarinet mentors amateur workshops, ensemble performance opportunities, a clarinet marketplace, and a young artist competition. Passes are on sale now, and you can learn more at cmnw.org. So I'm here today with the wonderful Michael Lowenstern. Michael, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So, you know, the last time we chatted was almost two years ago. And first, just to start off for our listeners, I just want to get a bit of an update. So what have you been up to the last couple of years? So I haven't actually been doing that much writing um, of new stuff. I've been spending a lot of time making arrangements, as some people have noticed, uh, and recording those arrangements uh, as part of my YouTube series. In fact, I've been focusing on the YouTube series for a while and performing the stuff that I already have written. 
Um, so that's really what I've been focusing on that. And of course, my, um, you know, my double major in life, I got a job working for Amazon in their advertising group. And that has just been a total time suck, as one might imagine. So in the last two years, you have done and I've noticed that actually you've come out with an extensive number of new videos. You seem to have really focused on that. And I do want to talk about that in a minute. Um, of course, for me, two years ago, when I first got you on the show, you're one of the guests I was most looking forward to having ever. And then I opened the floor up to listener questions because there were so many that kind of flooded in. But so everyone listening today is my turn to talk to Michael. <laughs> last time was was your turn. Um, of course, since then as well, I also recently had a daughter. And Michael, I just want to let you know that she absolutely loves your 10 children album. I put it on while I feed her sometimes. Oh, awesome. Thank so you. She, she's also <laughs> grooving to that and uh, we're feeding into your Spotify royalties there. So speaking of all that kind of stuff, I wanted to start off today because you recently re released an interesting video where you talked about your musical income and sort of doing your taxes. Um, I was wondering if you could explain why you felt compelled to do this. It was a pretty bold move. Well, I think that there is a perception of uh, somebody on YouTube in particular that when you have a certain number of subscribers and you make a certain number of videos, um, that somehow that translates into money. And, you know, there are a lot of young people that watch, uh, my videos. Uh, and I know this just simply, uh, they write to me. And of course, some of the comments that I read, it's just indicative of the fact that, and also frankly, Google slash YouTube does a great job of telling me who my, who my audience is. There's a lot of 13 to 25 year olds who aren't working necessarily yet. And they have this perception of, okay, well, I know this person from YouTube, so they're YouTube famous, so therefore they're rich. <laughs> Ain't the case. So I wanted to, you know, make a point of showing what, what that part of my revenue stream is, but also what it is to be a musician and have to have kind of a, a portfolio career of a number of different things that you cobble together in order to survive as a musician. Now, obviously, I don't survive as only a, as a musician. I have a job at Amazon, and that is my main income. But the you know the music income uh, is isn't big. I mean, but then again, it's a side hustle for me. But I just wanted to give uh, my audience a chance to sort of see underneath how much it really uh, how much energy it takes and how much money you make out of something like that. So, of course, I encourage everyone to actually go watch the video. It was really interesting. But was there anything that you were surprised yourself by as you went through there this year? No, I, I do my taxes every year and I'm, you know, I'm really fairly well aware of the business part of my business. Uh, and it's not just once a year that I uh, monitor it. I know what's going on all the time uh, as, as one who runs a business should. Uh, you, you know what your you know what your income and your outlays are, and you know how you're doing. And if you don't, then you're in for either a really rude awakening or a nice surprise come tax time. I guess more what I was referring to though is, for example, with I know that when I check my Spotify revenues, I am often shocked uh, how how small that actually is. And and like you said, I think that people sorry not Shopify Spotify, um, but people go through and they listen to your album on on whatever streaming service, and they think that they're um, doing a real great thing. But an album purchase. I've read an article recently that said an album purchase was something like a thousand times more revenue than streaming that album to the artist. Oh, I haven't done that math, but uh, I did read an article now probably five years ago that Lady Gaga in December of whatever year that was that I read it uh, had like 160 million streams and she made something like under a thousand dollars from that. So it's just what it is. You know, I mean, obviously that's not a major part of her, her revenue. 
Well, I mean, the industry is changing too. So, so let's talk a bit more about the business element for a second, because it sounds like something that you're obviously very well versed in. Why do you feel it's so important? I think many musicians feel that the more time they spend on the business, the less time they can give to the music. And then so they kind of just let the business end suffer. Well, um, obviously, if, if you're in the music business uh, and anyone who gets paid for to play music is, um, you're really losing money if you don't pay attention to those dollars and cents. And I'll give you a couple of examples. Let's say you play a gig and you have to drive to that gig and you have to get dry cleaning for your tails or your suit or whatever it is that you're wearing for that gig. And you, you know, you have to pay for gas and possibly you have to stay overnight at a hotel and you buying reeds so that you can play that gig and you have, and you're spending money in order to make that money. And a lot of musicians don't think about all of those details of what it, you know, what goes into actually being a performer. And if you don't pay attention to that, you're going to wind up at the end of the year losing a lot of money to taxes. So it's really incumbent on anyone who makes a living in music to pay attention and sweat the details. Um, and there are a lot of things that people don't think about as being part of making a living as a musician. Spotify subscriptions cost money and they are, you can actually write those off. iTunes, any of that stuff that you, that you have that's related to music, you can write off. So you just need to pay attention to those details as they're as you do them during the year, as you pay these bills, as you buy reads, as you buy gas, as you have maintenance on your car, uh, as you pay rent on your apartment that you also teach lessons in. All of these things, if you don't do the business of music, you'll wind up just letting that money go and frankly go to the government. Yeah. So I mean, basically what you're saying is if you've got an event and let's say you book a wedding with your quartet and you charge a thousand dollars and you pay each of your colleagues two fifty and you pocket 250, but it costs you a hundred bucks to kind of in reeds and suit ironing and stuff to do the gig. Really, your claim should be $150. But if you accidentally claim that you made a thousand dollars, you're going to be in a real, <laughs> a real situation. So you got to keep track of those expenses. It's just part of the work in this day and age. Yeah. And that's just simply the money part of the music business. And then there's obviously all of the other parts of networking and understanding how to, you know, how to position yourself for gigs and all, all that stuff, which I don't even get into in that video, but that's a whole other side of the business. Yeah, I'd, I'd love it if you'd make one that goes into the direct marketing, you know, thoughts that you have as well. Um, but let's talk about kind of some of that. You, you're very good at diversifying into multiple streams. Like not only do you have your playing and, and teaching career, but you're also recording music and making these videos. And you've got a website where you sell now at earspasm.com, all kinds of little accessories and a niche audience. I mean, how do you manage all this and, and how do you come up with where to spend your time? Because I know it must become limited. That's actually where I do the worst job <laughs> is, is um, you know, kind of uh, planning out my days and my weeks and my years. Um, and sometimes I will let things slide. Uh, like I won't make a video for three weeks instead of two weeks. And I'm currently at that place right now where I'm now delinquent. Um, and it just kind of happens. I hope that the audience is uh, understanding and patient with me. But in terms of, uh, you know, finding time for everything, you, I don't watch television. <laughs> that helps a lot. Yeah, not even Netflix? Uh, rarely. That's so interesting to me because I do the same thing and it, it's so hard because, you know, life gets in the way. And, and when you're producing content, um, it always takes more time than you think. And, and I was wondering if you could sort of go through, let's say you want to make a, a 10 minute video, for example, about your taxes. So, so someone watching that takes 10 minutes of time and they it seems all edited and produced and, the, you know, the magic's in the production, right? But how long did that really take? 
About six hours. Yeah. So there we are, folks. Ten minutes turns into six hours of work. That's uh, I think that's pretty normal for producing video. Well, if I'm producing one of the bass clarinet choir videos, um, that first of all, I have to arrange the music, then I have to record it, then I have to plan out what I'm going to do for the video, then I actually have to make the video, uh, which will take all day and sometimes two days. Um, and then I have to edit the video, which will take maybe five or six hours. I would say that the the taxes video was one of the easiest videos, first of all, since I didn't have to play, so I didn't have to worry about screwing up uh, and having to retake stuff over and over again, which I do. Um, so, yeah, no, it can take anywhere between six hours and, you know, a week. I love how we've gone from, you know, Bach in the Bach yard to, uh, to these, <laughs> <laughs> to these amazing videos you're producing. You did one of a uh, repaired fratris piece and, uh, there's really great stuff coming out now. Thank you. So let's talk about YouTube for a second, because I think that YouTube is an area that, uh, I feel like it's growing in ways that even, you know, I did not see, see coming. And I feel like, you know, I've even got to push into it a little bit to continue making an impact. But, um, how, what advice would you give to those who are considering starting their own YouTube channel and, and finding a niche? Um, I think the most important thing is to just do it regularly. And in the very beginning, and a lot of the videos from the very early years still only have a few hundred views and you, you can't get disappointed by 29 or a hundred or 150 views uh, of your video, you have to still make them. And I've seen so many times where people have all of this ambition and they go into it with a lot of energy and they quickly get uh, disappointed with the results. And, uh, you know, that is what's going to kill it. So if you have, uh, if you have a great idea or if you think you have a good idea and you want to try it out, you have to commit to doing it for a while. And a while isn't a week or a month or, or a couple months. A while is a year or two because it didn't take, gosh, it took me maybe four years before I started getting more than a thousand views per video. Wow. Yeah. That, that is a big hurdle. And I was once told that it's good to imagine because um, numbers look small online. You know, you see some ridiculous news clip or some cat video that has 40 million views. And then you put up a, a thing that you spent a lot of time on and it gets 600 or 200 or 20. Um, it can be really discouraging, but I was told that what really helps is to actually imagine the type of room that the number of people that have watched your video would fill. Um, and that's really helped me get over some of the hurdles. I mean, even 30 people is a classroom. You just present it to a classroom. Good for you. When I first started making videos, I made them for one person. That was for my student who, and I think I may have mentioned it even on the last time we spoke, but in, in brief, at the end of a lesson, I would say, go listen to this piece of music. And she would inevitably go and listen to some high schooler play it on YouTube. And I, my intention was for her to go to Spotify or whatever it was at the time and find a good recording of it and listen to a professional player play it. But inevitably, it was easy for her to just go to YouTube. And I started realizing that that wasn't helping and it wasn't doing what I had intended. So what I did was I would make these videos knowing that she would be searching for that on YouTube. And it would be me on the other end of it saying, aren't you moron? I meant go watch somebody else play it. But fine, I'll be the one that plays it for you. And, <laughs> and I would make that video intending for her to watch it and only for her to watch it. And that was how I started. And I did that for, and it wound up doing that for several years. I've removed most of those videos because they were very, very specific to her. You know, <laughs> that, that really was the genesis of it. And I didn't care. I wasn't in it for having, you know, thousands of people watching. But that's the best way to do it. I've heard that creating a niche, you actually have to make the niche so 
um, kind of with such precision that you can literally imagine a person, like a person you could sit down and talk to about their likes and dislikes, that, and that person, you know, could almost literally exist. And they do. They, they do because, um, you know, YouTube gives you really great analytics. And that's something else that as a musician, you're not used to doing it's sort of diving into who it is that's watching your videos and for how long. And my original videos, I didn't know who my audience was. I mean, there were so few of them that I couldn't even count on the data that I read. But now it's become very clear to me that I know the demographic of the people who watch my videos. And I know what age group they are. And I know what gender they are. And I know where they live. And it's important because then you can start to um, gear your content for that audience. So let's move on about your portfolio life here. We've talked about the YouTube a little bit and um, let's go into your whole endeavor as far as the website and online store. So that's adapted quite a bit over the last couple of years as well. Yeah, originally it was just downloads uh, because that's easy. Uh, you don't have to ship anything. And um, But let me tell you a really quick story. So these tooth cushions that I use, which are these, I sell them. Um, and they're made out of paraffin wax and they're intended for uh, laboratory. They cover test tubes, actually. So it's it's medical grade wax that's very thin like a piece of paper. And, you, you, you know, they come in these long rolls and I sell them in strips of, I don't know, three feet or something. And um, I've been using them since I was a kid. And I remember my father telling me, he's like, you know, you know, you could make money selling these to people. And I was like, Dad, you're an idiot. No, no, <laughs> I'm never. No, are you kidding? No. And I never did it. And I never did it. And my dad passed away and I started actually started selling them and they started selling like crazy. And my mom is like, your dad would be so proud of you. And, uh, you know, and I realized that there's all of these little things that people don't know about that I don't need to make a ton of money on. And I actually don't make that much money on it, but I make these things available. So like, you know, read plaques, you can go and spend 10 or $12 or even more if you get some fancy ones, or I can just have them, um, you know, cut by this uh, plastics company and I don't know where they are. And it's, you know, it's, it's food grade plastic. And I just have them cut to the size I want. And I, I'm able to sell them really cheaply, you know, because I can. And so I realized that if I, if, if I stock my store with stuff that's, you can't get anywhere else, or if you can, wherever, whatever I have is going to be a heck of a lot cheaper. Uh, I have a little cottage industry. So that's, that was uh, how I got started. And it's still pretty small. And I know you and I have talked about it a little bit offline, but it's it's difficult to know what things to stock. Um, and that's that's what I'm learning right now is, you know, what are people willing to buy from me versus willing to buy from, you know, Fred Wiener or the Woodwind and the Brasswind and whatever. Exactly. And, you know, that's something that I found as well was that, and I'm in the process, we're kind of in the opposite process. I'm currently trying to shut down the Clarinet store, everything except what's, uh, you know, drop shipped. It's a term we can talk about maybe in a minute. I found that for me, I didn't want to be stocking so much of other people's um, products because then I have to carry inventory that has a high cost associated with it and honestly a pretty minimal profit margin. So I think what you're doing in a lot of ways makes a lot more sense. Like you've got these little little swabs. You make those swabs yourself? I, I put my daughter up to the task. Oh. <laughs> um, but to, for anybody who knows, I pay her 100% of what I get. Minus the materials cost, she gets it all. So that's subsidizing her whatever she does at the University of Michigan as a sophomore. 
Well, and you do go over this a little bit in the video, but what are some costs that people don't understand about online stores? I mean, me, for example, I'll, you know, you sell a, a product like I would think I was selling those rejuvenates for about $20 and, and people don't understand why shipping's not free and why, um, you know, why you can't give them a discount. And, and sometimes it's like, well, you know, I, I, I paid X amount for these and after PayPal and everything like that, it's so, so what do you find adds up for you? Well, I mean, you bring a good point up. People have an expectation that is um, that has been set by none other than my employer, Amazon, where shipping is free and you get it in two days. And, um, you know, they have quite a logistics. I mean, Amazon spends almost $7 billion a year in shipping. Um, and so that's the scope of their operation. For little guys like us, um, you know, we don't have the ability to drive down those costs with the kind of scale that large large companies have like Amazon. We have to pay retail for our shipping. In other words, whatever that postage stamp costs, I have to pay for. And people are used to companies absorbing the cost, like Amazon, because they make so much of it up in, in scale. Um, but that's one of the major costs is actually is postage. And so I charge postage. And if people you know, aren't comfortable buying stuff from me because they have to pay 3 or $4 in postage, then they don't buy from me. Um, and, I, and I totally get that. But to answer the, your question about, you know, some of the other costs, obviously it costs money to have a website up and running. It costs money to have the companies like PayPal and Stripe accept payment, credit card payment for you. They take typically 3%, 2.9% of every dollar that you make. So almost three cents of every dollar goes simply to the people that is taking the dollar and giving you the 97 cents on the other side. Uh, there is costs for marketing, but I don't actually spend much for marketing costs. I do all of that through YouTube, which is time cost, but it's not actual money cost for me. So I do uh, a lot of, you know, the, the content creation that I make on YouTube is in part because I love it, mostly because I love it. And in part, it's a way of getting people to the website when they see something or I talk about something in a, a video that I happen to sell, which isn't often. They'll come to the site through that. But that costs money. If you don't make your own videos, you have to pay for that. And then there are all of the little costs of like, I have to pay an accountant. I have to have accounting software. I have, you know, there's all of the little things that you don't think about that just is the cost of running a business. You know, we don't have to get into this part if you don't want to, but um, are, do you fulfill everything from your, your home in New York or are you doing? I do. You do? Okay, wow. So you stock all these t-shirts. No, I don't stock the t-shirts. I drop ship those. Everything else is coming straight from me. Yeah, this is something I've been doing too. And, and for those listening, basically what this means is like if someone orders it, it gets fulfilled by a secondary company. And it's really the only way to do t-shirts because I found, originally I was trying to stock them myself and, and you know, you get one shirt style and five sizes, three each, all of a sudden you're at 15 shirts and uh, you got 10 styles and five sizes. You're in for a real, not only investment of money, but also like where are you going to put all that stuff, right? So um, it's really the only way to do these kind of shirts. But uh, but yeah, I found it's been pretty successful for me anyways. So Yeah. And by the way, anybody who's listening to this, you have got to check out Sean's shirts. Um, I think they are literally the coolest clarinet t-shirts they are they have like passed geek and they have gone to this sort of other <laughs> level of awesomeness way beyond geek they're so geeky that they're cool and they're really cool so go get yourself some uh they, <laughs> I'm, I'm 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 currently fighting with my wife about who gets to wear them oh really you guys uh, yeah because that's right she plays clarinet too so yeah, yeah she you both are clarinet nerds there with those shirts so. <laughs> that's right thanks michael well, i love your shirts too you got some new ones up like i like this mouthpiece one that's really cool Thanks. And uh, yeah, really, really creative stuff. So 
I just love the way you've diversified your whole career and it's sort of a portfolio. Would you consider it a portfolio the right word? Yeah, it's the word I use. Um, and there's a little playing in that portfolio. There's obviously the website and the shop. There's the video and the revenue that I get off of uh, YouTube from that. Uh, there's the music that I write that I sell. So it's that in terms of my music portfolio, that's there's there's a lot going on. I teach. Um, so I think that anyone who is uh, looking at a career in music or has a career in music has to some degree or another portfolio life. Um, it's not unless even if you're in an orchestra, you are teaching and you are, you know, diversified a bit in terms of the work that you do. Well, that was my next question, actually, is let, let's consider a person who maybe hasn't yet realized their portfolio. Um, like literally, they're, they're trying to get by doing gigs. They've graduated recently and they're kind of like, hmm, I'm going to need to add to this. Where is the first place you'd suggest starting and in what ways, maybe even ways other than what you've done, should someone be looking to diversify their portfolio of income? Well, that's a really good question. And it really depends where you live. Um, you know, if you're in a bigger city like Chicago or L.A. or Seattle or New York, um, there are a, a lot more opportunities that exist. There are a lot more places for you to play. There are a lot more people that you can meet and play with. That determines the size of your portfolio. But let's say that, you know, you graduate from a school in North Carolina and you're in, you know, Greensboro, North Carolina, you're at UNCG. And there you are. You're in this town where there, it's a college town. There's some industry there. There are families there who have kids who want to learn the clarinet. But there's probably a lot more clarinetists per capita in, you know, in Greensboro than there is in New York. And so the, the issue that you have is do you want to first question you have is do you want to stay in Greensboro uh, or do you want to go to a place where there's a little bit more headroom, if you will? Uh, I decided when I moved to New York that I wanted to go to a place where the, the headroom was the highest. Right. So um, I probably would never get as high as I wanted to get. So that, you know, that's the scariest part. But if you look at it in a positive way, there are a lot fewer clarinet players per capita. So if I wanted to teach, there would be a lot more opportunity for me to find students who are interested in playing, say, the clarinet or the bass clarinet in a city that's big. There's just more people. It's just simple population. So uh, what first thing I would think about is where do you want to land? Because if you, if you set yourself up in Greensboro or Austin, which is bigger, obviously, than Greensboro, you are, you're limiting yourself just by the size of the environment in which you're living. You will have to travel a lot more to make that portfolio work for yourself. So think carefully about where you want to land. Once you're there, you want to think about who, what kinds of people you need to meet in order to start playing. And for that, you need to go see a lot of other people play and you need to hang out afterwards and you just need to be cool. All right. You don't go up and say, hey, I'm new in town. Here's my card and I'm looking for gigs <laughs> and can you help me out? And that doesn't work. You just go and just be cool and go see a lot of stuff and have a beer and meet people. And you'll get, you know, some crappy little gig here or there. And by crappy, I just mean small in a small place. And some of those people that you've gone to go visit, that's when you contact them and invite them. And you can either invite them to come hear you. And they probably won't, but that's okay. Or you can invite them to come and play with you. And that's an opportunity for you to hand out a gig to someone. Even if it is a nothing gig, it means a lot. And they have an investment in you at that point. So finding people to play with and inviting them to play with you by going and hearing them. At that point, you're starting to build a network. So you've got your network of maybe students that you want to teach. You have your network of people that you want to play with. And, you know, at that point, you're on your way. 
Um, and then it's a matter of time. And there was this longstanding phrase that people used to say, when you get to New York, it takes seven years for you to land and be successful. And that's still pretty much accurate. It takes about seven years here. It seems like a long time, but if you think about it, it's really not that long. And if you can survive for that long, if you're here for a decade, you're pretty much, you're set and you're still growing. And so uh, I just encourage people, it's, <laughs> there's so much instant gratification that people have an expectation of, uh, not everybody, but a lot, that you need to understand that <laughs> just sort of the, the rules of economics haven't changed just because uh, the world has evolved. It still takes a while. It takes networking. It takes human to human contact and it takes time. What would you say to those artists that feel that they should just create art for art's sake and, and try not, like, I've seen recently some posts on Facebook where people are saying things like, oh, you know, I, I can't find work and stuff, but that's okay because I'm, I'm doing what I love. And how do you sustain that? And what would you say to those people? God bless you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, honestly, if you look at it, I'm not doing it for the money. Um, I'm doing it because I enjoy it. I do it because other people seem to enjoy it. Uh, I do it because I have something to say. And I'm very, very, very fortunate that people, some of whom, some, some people want to actually hear what I have to say. And that's just the best uh, combination for me. But, you know, uh, it's different for everybody. If, but if, if you've got another job and you're playing in an or look, Amazon has a company orchestra. It's pretty damn good. And these are people who are engineers and they work all throughout the company. It's in Seattle. They meet once or twice a week and they play because they want to play. I mean, that's an outlet. There's so many outlets like that, that, yeah, you know, you don't have to lower your standards. Yeah. I don't think many people realize, but there's this notion out there that if you go on to something else in addition to your music, that you're somehow uh, like throwing in the towel or giving up or, or, or selling out. And I couldn't disagree more. Like I've worked now in in the field of, with marketing here with Bakun and, and really enjoying it. I find that it's really interesting to me. I'm, I'm also good at it. I have other skills outside of the clarinet. And, and so how you're so good at building a, a portfolio music wise, but how would you advise that people also build sort of a life portfolio as far as all the, all other elements fitting together? Um, I can't give people advice about what's best for them. Uh, I can only talk about what's best for me. I've always had an interest in marketing and advertising um, that came from all the way back when I had to make recital posters to get people to come to my recitals at school. And to me, that is the link to what I do now for a living living. I really enjoyed that part of music. And that part of that part of my music career actually is is transferable. And that's the other thing that people don't recognize is that when you go to school, and even if you don't, but if you're standing up in front of an audience of people and you're playing for them, you're doing something that most people can't do. They don't have the wherewithal, the guts, the courage to stand up and play a concert in front of a bunch of other people. Hell, you, a lot of people can't get, get stand up in front of a bunch of people and say a toast at a wedding, much less go and play an instrument. So if you have that skill... That's a transferable skill to a boardroom, for example. You can get up and talk to a bunch of people standing up in front of a boardroom and command the audience like you command the audience wherever it is that you're playing. So looking at what it is that you learn as a musician, there's the de dedication it takes to learn the instrument, the poise that it takes to perform, the ability to read an audience, the ability to improvise if you screw up, the ability to be able to bow even if you have screwed up. The, be able, the ability to network with people both before, after, during, whatever the concert, those are all skills that exist and that are valuable outside of the music world. So if you can figure out a way 
to transfer those skills, you're actually better than most people who leave college who have none of those, I guess I call them performing skills that are necessary in so many careers today. Well, Daryl Caswell talked about this way, way back on episode four. He's an engineering professor at the University of Calgary and a professional horn player. And he said that he looks for in his students um, the, the, whether or not they were in band. Because when you get a group that was in band up there presenting their engineering project, it's totally different than the ones who weren't. They have The ones who weren't have no idea how to stand up in front of people. They have no idea how to create a cohesive presentation. And the difference is just totally shocking. So that's so I think that's such great advice. Yeah, it's totally true. And I actually spend a lot of time with people who work for me who don't have the experience, who are younger, who haven't stood up and presented their ideas in front of clients. We spend time talking about how to present. And uh, I recognize that it's it's difficult for most people who have never stood on a stage. Not to mention teaching skills. I mean, even if you don't think that you're a teacher and you've just finished high school, I mean, I bet you could still turn to your friend and explain which fingering they should use and and do it in a respectful way. There's so many people in an office environment that lack that basic communication skill. Some people look at helping someone else as zero sum. In other words, if I help you to be better, then I somehow get less. Because you have something that I used to have only, and now you have it too. And somehow that makes you in a better position than me. And it becomes this weird competition. So people withhold information uh, from other people uh, as a way of protecting the comfortable position that they have. Obviously, that's not the case. And when you're teaching someone else, there's so much more that goes into the environment. You're actually bringing everybody up to a higher level, including yourself, because you're able to articulate something in a way maybe that you haven't been able to articulate before. So teaching is uh, so crucial. And uh, I think that people who spend a lot of time with one-on-one mentoring, which we do as as musicians, we also have a unique uh, exposure to that that a lot of others who have only been in a classroom uh, don't. You know, we spend an hour a week with our teacher. It's catered specifically and dedicated to us. We know what it's like to be mentored. Then we can in turn do that. I love that. You know, we spend a lot of time talking about your business sort of career here and the videos and all that stuff. I want to ask a few questions about your music. I don't want to feel like I neglected that. Um, I was a fan, I think, of Michael Lowenstern's CDs way back before it was cool. As soon as basically, uh, I think it was like 10 Children came out. Um, What was that, like 2006? That was 2003. 2003, yeah. So I I had that in university. Um, I remember seeing you live at Clarinet Fest in like 2007 or something. And and all these albums are are so creative, so interesting. And um, I guess what was a shock to me is that they don't have wider reach. I mean, I'm... I'm always finding that I, I think I should be hearing them on the radio. Such great melodies. Um, so how do you go about crafting these pieces that you write? And, and how do you practice um, improvising and, and making up this new music? Um, well, first of all, thank you. Um, I'm, I'm glad you like it. And, uh, you know, my process is pretty much unchanged since I was doing 10 children. Um, and that is that I will record everything in uh, in a program called Logic. Back in the early days, it was still owned by somebody other than Apple, but now Apple owns Logic. Uh, I do it by creating either a bass line or a harmony or a melody or even sometimes a percussion loop with my body. And, uh, and then I, I kind of build from there with different layers. And it's kind of like looping uh, where you know you you lay a percussion layer and then you lay a bass line and then you have a melody or a harmony and you just kind of build up layers. Except in the way I do it, 
I'm actually able to take and build sections. So I'll have some, you know, an introduction and a theme and a and like a melody, a, a verse, if you will. Then I have a chorus or a bridge and I go back to a verse and then I'm, you know, play a solo. And most of my tunes follow that format. Then once I'm done with that, I have to figure out how I'm going to perform it. And I transfer everything over into a program now called Ableton Live. I used to use Max, uh, but now I'm using Ableton Live because it's a little more stable. And I practice the hell out of it uh, to make sure that it doesn't crash in concert because the last thing anybody wants to see is me fiddling with a computer on stage. And I just, you know, I play it over and over and over and I play my concert sets over and over and over again until they become really, really uh, fluid. And I spend very, very little time looking at and focusing on uh, the electronics. And so I can focus on the audience instead. And that's basically the process. So in the process of the actual, I want to call it songwriting, is that appropriate? Sure. Or you want a comp- composition? What would you prefer? Uh, songwriting is fine. Songwriting, yeah, because they kind of have uh, they have formal structure, as in songs you might hear in the radio sometimes, not always. I'm noticing the way you described it is kind of analytical. Do you think about it from an analytical perspective first? Like I'd write, like to write a you know verse, chorus, bridge form, or do you think of a melody that and then just work with it that way? How do you? The latter. I I usually find something that I like, um, either that has a hook or that I just like, and I I work from there. Yeah, you know, the new theme music, which I want to thank you for on the podcast here, it's just amazing. It's uh, from, it's called July 14th, and it is from your, which album is that, Fade? Fade. Yeah, so this is a great album. Check it out, everybody. I'll put a link in the show notes. Um, but I think that it, I can hear what you're describing now in that music. Like, you start off with a really cool kind of uh, bass clarinet riff, and there's this drumming and all in the background. And you're doing all that stuff yourself, correct? Have you ever had guest artists come on for these kind of collaborations or is that in the works ever? My most recent record, which is from 2014 or 15, uh, called Sway, actually, I had a bass player and a drummer uh, join me on that. Oh, that's right. It was like a trio album. Yeah. And there were, you know, there's uh, my friend Todd Reynolds, who is like my brother. Uh, we've been together, working together since back in college. Um, he's on just about everything. Sway was released before we recorded the last podcast, and I was using that music um, previously to this music. Is there a new album in the works? It's been been a couple of years now. Uh-huh. Yeah, <laughs> I just I just started it, and though I, I I have a feeling that this one is going to be a lot of covers, but not like the covers I've done on YouTube with you know a dozen bass clarinets, um, but other covers of tunes that I can actually perform live. Can we get some hints? Which bands are you thinking of covering? Well, um, right now I'm working on that Hosier tune. I want everybody to uh, go to the website that Sean's going to put in the links of this podcast. And I want you to record playing the chorus of this tune called Sing um, that that was just released by Hosier. I love this tune. I love the lyrics of this tune. Um, and so that's going to definitely be on it. Um and by the way, once once you send me that, you're going to be on a video with me. What's what's the time frame there? When have we got to submit that by if we want to be in on that? The end of May. Yeah, but that tune, there's a tune that I'm looking at by D'Angelo. Uh, there's a tune by John Legend. Uh, there's a tune by, uh, gosh, possibly uh, the 1975. I think I know the one. That's the one? Wrong. What's that one called? No, no. Oh, the no. other one. The other one. It's the the tune I'm looking at is called Ugg. Oh, okay. It's an older one of theirs. I heard their new album. Yeah, it's got some interesting stuff that I actually was imagining arranging for clarinet quartets myself. <laughs> well, you better hurry up, brother. Gotta beat you to it. No Radiohead. I'm disappointed. 
Well, you know, I'll leave, I'll leave that to you. Yeah, I'm a huge Radiohead fan. I'm just kidding. Um, yeah, no, that sounds excellent. I can't wait for that. And I'm actually excited to see where that goes because I've noticed that this kind of content on Instagram especially is a huge hit with people. Um, incredible engagement for these kind of cover tunes. And I think it's good because, you know, it gets uh, another generation and another type of people interested in the capabilities of the clarinet. Yeah, I mean, and you know, the thing is that in reality, most people aren't looking at that and saying, oh, wow, I'm now interested in the clarinet. People just like what they like. And if you can provide them three or five minutes of something that they like, isn't that a great thing to do? Uh, now, obviously, I, not everything I do is is it to be mercantile and for a lot of people to watch it and people to buy the, you know, the sheet music or anything like that. I, I'm not that bad, uh, but it is always nice to have people like your music than to people not like it or for people to know it than for them to not know it. And so there's, you know, there's something to being a musician for me, for me, where I care if you listen and, uh, and it matters that I do something that, uh, that you're willing to take time out of your day to pay attention to for three or five minutes, because Lord knows there are a lot of cat videos that you could have been watching instead. Absolutely. And you know, I talked about this on my other show as well. Uh, the author of some book about Radiohead I was talking about called it the Goldilocks zone of finding the point where you can push, push things just enough, but you're still being within the public realm of interest. Um, because people want something that's, that's kind of pushing the boundaries. They don't necessarily want completely groundbreaking or they're not, they're going to lose interest. They can't focus on it. It's beyond their time, you know? So they want to kind of keep, keep within their interest. Do you find there's sometimes pushback professionally for making these sort of fun types of pieces? I mean, I think a lot of musicians feel guilty when they listen to a band like the 1975 instead of something from 1875. No, I don't get pushback. I get the opposite. Um, you know, I'll, I'll run into somebody who has a major orchestra job, but I'll meet them at a conference or I'll meet them at a concert and they'll just say, I love what you're doing. Uh, I recently got an email from a bass clarinetist who has a major orchestra job in the United States uh, this morning who asked me for a copy of my version of Prince's uh, How Come You Don't Call Me Anymore uh, so that he can play it with his group. Um, so, you know, I think it's the opposite. I think that I'm feeling maybe a guilty pleasure, but I don't even think it's that guilty for, for people because ultimately everybody enjoys playing music and that's what it should be for. And, uh, it doesn't matter if you have a big gig or if you're famous or if you're, you know, serious clarinet player, I think everybody enjoys the fun part of music as well. And, uh, you know, so I have no, uh, guilt, I have no shame <laughs> and, uh, and, and I'm, and I'm proud that, uh, you know, ultimately I have the freedom to do this. Well, you know, all the great composers throughout history even were deeply inspired by popular music and, and you know, folk melody type things. And I, I also think it's great, but um, I've personally seen, you know, some sort of highfalutin, <laughs> you know, I guess people that are just kind of turned off by it. But that's that's their problem, you know, and I think that's a... I, I want to say that most people who are highfalutin and turned off about it are actually not professional musicians. They're actually amateur musicians who feel somehow threatened by the fact that um, that maybe I'm not playing, quote, serious music or that I'm not taking music, quote, seriously. And frankly, uh, I, <laughs> in order to enjoy music, I think music, I mean, they call it playing music for a reason. Uh, and and you sh it should have an element of play and an element of fun, and it shouldn't be all about the seriousness. In fact, I think it actually shouldn't be about seriousness. If you look at Mozart, dude was not a serious guy. Yeah, yeah. 
not to mention the musical comedy of like Haydn. You know, all these people had, you know, had their fun. Yeah. So, Michael, I want to thank you again for taking the time to come on the show. This is your second time on the podcast. One of our you know, podcast veterans here. And uh, I definitely hope you'll come back again. Well, if, if we have more to talk about, I'd be happy to. But uh, thanks for doing what you do. And I, I love listening to your show. So I'm really thrilled that uh, you'd have me back. Thank you again for the music. And uh, where can everyone find you online? Not only to check out your awesome music, but also your store and the videos and everything else. Well, obviously, you can find me on YouTube, um, which is Earspasm, uh, or just searching for my name. And then my site is earspasm.com. It's so funny, in a Google age, it almost does seem silly to ask that question, but, <laughs> but uh, you know, how can you find me? Well, the way you find everything else. <laughs> yeah, Google, exactly. <laughs> yeah, let me get that for you, you know. All right, well, <laughs> All right, well thank you so much, Michael, and uh, I definitely look forward to chatting with you again. Will you be at Clarnet Fest this summer? Not this year, no. I don't know if I will either, but, uh, well, well, we'll touch base sometime. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the podcast. This is the first one that I've had the chance to edit, and now I'm recording the intros and outros in my new house, in my new studio. So thank you so much for your patience as I moved and was able to get wrapped up with everything at the old house and set up in the new one. Don't forget to send your video for Michael's YouTube project that he's making. I think they're due on May 21st, and I'm going to put a link to that in the show notes. And also check out his website at earspasm.com to hear the full interview with the lightning round section, head to the members area at clarinet.com slash subscribe. Don't forget to check out D'Addario's line of Reserve, Reserve Classic, and new Reserve Evolution reads. You can head to your local music store or to clarinet.com slash reads to buy a box right now. Hosting for Clarinet is sponsored by Bakun and their new Vocalese mouthpiece, Complex Resonance at a Reasonable Price. Get yours at www.bakunmusical.com and save 10% on any accessory purchase with code Clarinet at checkout. The show is also brought to you by Chamber Music Northwest. With over $20,000 in prizes and world-class guests, artists, and vendors, their upcoming clarinet celebration and competition is an event that you don't want to miss. Learn more at cmnw.org. That's all for now. Be sure to tune in next time for more of what's new and neat with clarinet with the neatest people in the industry on the Clarinet Podcast.